1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. Once you were not a people. Now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good works. Then glorify God on the day he visits us. Those who study exile in the Old Testament tell us that it never happens all at once. It happens gradually, generally in three or four movements. Each movement is symbolized by a signature moment. That is, that moment when it becomes clear to everyone what is really happening. Things may be changing gradually, but in a signature moment, everyone is aware that things have changed. In the Old Testament, that moment was in 587 BC when the Babylonians rushed into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Everyone who studies Old Testament knows that the exile had actually begun 20 years earlier, that the Jews were already being led out of Jerusalem little by little, one at a time. But in 587, it was that moment, and you could no longer ignore it. Everything had changed. That was clear. For some people, that moment in our history was about 20 years ago this fall, when about 15,000 people gathered in Yankee Stadium to commemorate the losses on September 11, and it was not presided over by an archbishop in the Catholic Church, but by a television celebrity, Oprah Winfrey. And it was not only one religion that was there, it was several. Christianity, Orthodox, Catholic, yes, but also so Judaism, Hindu, and Sikh. It was a collection of religions, and they were there to pray. Ten years later, when they gathered again in 2011, the planners decided they didn't need clergy at all, and there would be no prayers. So for some people, they look to moments like that when suddenly it becomes clear that, well, the Christians are no longer the physicians of the American soul. That belongs to somebody else now. It's a shocking moment for some. There are others, maybe in this room, who look to what happened a year ago when some of the leaders in the country began to shut down Christian churches, synagogues, mosques, but at the same time, let other entities, even public gatherings, continue even endorsing them. That was a moment for some of you when you went, whoa, wait a minute, things have changed. Okay, that's that signature moment that I'm talking about. The more we drift into exile, and remember exile comes in stages, the more it will be clear that we have other questions than the ones we've been asking. The question is no longer how do we grow and how do we protect our rights? The question deep in exile 
is how do we live in a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to our customs and beliefs? When do we say that we're Christians and when are we quiet about it? How do we resist power when it is corrupt and oppressive without getting run over by it? How do we stand for Christ at the same time adapting to changes in the culture? How do we fight and when do we fight for our beliefs without becoming militant? These are different questions. And if the message today seems for, hot, for some of you hard to handle, it is only because I judge it to be later in the day than you do. Everywhere I meet ministers and leaders in the church, everyone believes it is sometime in the afternoon. Yet our strategy and our expectations are like it's still 10 in the morning, like anything is possible, like nothing has changed. So do what we've always done. But the further you go into exile, the more necessary it is to change your strategy. In the book of Esther, at the very beginning, we are introduced to two women, the only two in the whole story. And it might be a way of reading the entire book because both women are queens, both of them virtuous so far as we know, both of them living under oppressive conditions for a king whose power is corrupt, and yet each of them, Queen Vashti and Queen Esther, represent an entirely different approach. One, Queen Vashti, is the way of resistance. The other, Queen Esther, is the way of subversion. It's slow, but it works. The further we go into exile, the more it becomes clear only subversion will work. 500 years before Christmas, lived a powerful king named Xerxes over an empire called Persia. His power extended all the way from India to Egypt. He controlled all of the states and all of the countries. And he threw a party, lasted six months, invited all the politicians. They ate and drank for six solid months. And then when it was over, he threw another one for all of the people in the capital city except the women. This one was only for the men. Halfway through the party, when all of the men had had enough to drink, shall we say, uh, he ordered his wife, the queen Vashti, to put on her royal garments and come into the party. Because the Bible says in chapter 1, verse 11, she was lovely to look at. Now, we know from other historians, Plutarch, for instance, that Persian kings often ate with their wives, but when they wanted to start drinking, they dismissed their wives. And in the words of Plutarch, 
called in the dancing girls and the concubines. Now, no one knows why exactly he ordered Vashti to appear as the only woman in a room full of drunken men, but if it was so she might show off her appearance, then he was reducing her in that moment to a dancing girl or a concubine. She wouldn't have it. She decided that she was not an object. She would not be leered at and ogled after by a room full of drunken men. And so she refused to come to the party. And for that, the king released her. She is no longer the queen. Now, this is America. And y'all are... Uh, uh, it's pretty easy for Americans to look at what Vashti did and to see that as the symbol of nobility. That's what you do when someone assaults your dignity. You stand up for yourself, you fight for yourself, you will not be anyone's object. Because in America, we believe in tea parties and revolutions and protests. It's how things get done in this country. But you gotta remember, this ain't America. This is Persia. And in Persia, there is no US Constitution, no Bill of Rights, no due process, no social media, no pulling for the underdog. There is only the king and there is no accountability. There is no separation of powers. There is no checks and balances. There is no Supreme Court. There is only the king and he is driven by special interests and he is drunk. You may not like it, but that's the culture you live in. So you may resist that kind of power if you want, and you will be promptly deposed. Your only hope is that other people in the kingdom will see this resistance, and then they will resist too. And maybe they will come together in the form of a protest. And if we can get enough people doing this, we'll have a movement on our hands, and that will be a formidable opponent to the powerful king. Who knows, one day they may even impeach him. But this is Persia. The power does what it wants. If you ignore that, you may be right but you've just lost what little power you had. So the king deposes her and he looks for a new queen. He looks for one in the king's eyes who is young, of marriageable age, wait for it, and beautiful to look at. He might be imagining, as someone said, um, a shy, and easily intimidated, pretty young thing who never lets it enter her head 
to object to the king's power. He has no idea what is about to walk through that door. A search goes out for a new queen. Meanwhile, a Jew named Mordecai, who was taken into exile when the Babylonians came, and he's lived in exile, and now the dispersion, and has never gone back. Captivity is all he has ever known, and he has a cousin named Esther, whose name means concealed or hiding, and she's an orphan. Her mother and father have been killed, maybe in exile, and Mordecai has decided to adopt her, and he raises her, and one day when the servants come to uh, recruit her or to draft her one more time, they don't ask, this is Persia. They order her to appear before the king and she goes in to see the king. The king is thunderstruck at the beauty of Esther. He's twitterpated and he orders that this will be the new queen. He calls for a seven day banquet and in the middle of the banquet, he marries her and then at the reception, he places the crown on her head and Esther moves from being in the poor to being in the palace. She moves from having no power to having the power of a queen, from rags to riches. Mordecai, however, remains at the gate, pacing back and forth, wondering what happened to Esther. You understand in these days, there are no cell phones. <laughs> She's not changing her status on Facebook. And so Mordecai has no idea how she's doing. He's waiting for the news and he's sitting at the gate and he overhears two of the king's officers talking about how they plan to kill him. And so he gets word to Esther in the palace that there's this attempt to take the king's life. The king conducts an investigation. They find the men guilty. They execute them and hang their bodies on poles. Xerxes, the king, decides to elevate a new officer. His name is Haman, whose name means noise or trouble. He orders that whenever people see Haman, they are to go face down and bow in front of him. And so they do. He walks in front of the gate and everybody goes on their faces except for Mordecai. He's a Jew. He didn't bow for anybody but Yahweh, the Lord. And when Haman hears that Mordecai is a Jew, he says, not only will I kill Mordecai, I will kill all of the Jews, slaughter them for their insolence. He marches in to see the king and he says these things about these Jews that I wish hmm, to God they were saying about us. 
he says, there is among the peoples a kind of people whose ways and customs are different from our ways. They refuse to obey the king's laws and they will not kneel to the king's idol. What do you think we should do, says the king? And Haman says, I think we should slaughter them. And here's 375 tons of silver, translated $315 million that I will put into the royal treasury in today's currency so you can get started with the slaughter. And so the king signs the edict. And when Mordecai at the gate hears this, he tears his clothes and he sits in the ashes and he goes into mourning. He knows it is only a matter of time before in the worst genocide in history they will round up every Jew and slaughter them. Esther hears that Mordecai is grieving at the gate. She sends him presents to cheer him up. He won't accept them. She sends another messenger, that boy that ran 14 times from one end of the field to the other to find out what exactly is the problem. And one day when the messenger arrives, it is Mordecai at the gate, not Esther in the palace who knows what has actually happened. Mordecai produces a copy of the law and talks the servant line for line through the law and explains the king's wishes to kill all of them. And when the servant returns to Esther, he says, Mordecai has given me an order. He says that you are to go in and beg for the lives of the Jews so that the king will not destroy us. But Esther, in the palace, knows how things get done. She sends word back to Mordecai. If I go into the king's presence and he has not summoned me, I will be killed on the spot. The only exception is if the king reaches and holds forth the gold scepter. If he does that, I live for another day, maybe. But maybe not longer. And you tell Mordecai that I have not been in the king's presence for 30 days. The chances that he suddenly changes his mind and wants to see me are slim to none. The servant returns back to Mordecai and says, this is what Esther said. And when Mordecai hears it, he says... Tell Esther, do not think because you live in the king's palace, you of all the Jews will live. If you do nothing, and the Hebrew scholars, some of them anyway, tell us the next phrase is a question. It is not a statement. If you do nothing, Will help arise from another place? No. You and your father's family will die. And besides, who knows that you came to your position for a moment just like this? Esther, here's the message. 
and sends one last word back to Mordecai. Tell Mordecai and all the Jews that are gathered at the gate that they are to fast and pray for three days. And I will do the same thing. And then if at the end of those three days, we have clearance, I will go and see the king. And if I die, I die. And I pause for a moment and just say, you really have to feel for Esther, don't you? You're in a position of power and privilege. And you are called to act on information that the people at the gate have that you don't know. But you will be the first one to die. Not the people at the gate. If you're Mordecai, you will die eventually. But for now, you can stand at the gate and shout invectives at the people in the palace, telling them what they should do. But if you are actually in the palace, you actually have power, your own power, not somebody else's. It's not that clear. You feel the weight of your people, and yet you alone know how things get done. You know how temperamental is the king, and you know the importance of timing and the price of being wrong. Are you with me? Nevertheless, after fasting and praying for three days, Esther decides that she will go and see the king. The king is on his throne and he's looking down the corridor, down the hall, when Esther suddenly appears dressed as a queen. And when he sees her, there's this pause, this moment where one starts to wonder what is going to happen. She's either going to live or she's going to die. There is no middle ground, and we will know in a second. And we are never told why this happened. Was it boredom? Was it nobility? Curiosity? We, we don't know. But suddenly, the king reached for the scepter, and he extended it. What are the chances? And when he did, Esther approached slowly, cautiously, humbly, and she bowed with her face to the ground. She touched the scepter, and the king said, what do you want? Name it. Up to half the kingdom, what do you want? Esther knows better than to blurt out what she heard at the gate. She just says, if it pleases the king, if the power has favored me, 
let me make a banquet for you tomorrow. And I'd like you to come and bring Haman with you. And all the people of God said, yeah. This is the moment in the story, is it not? That sudden joyous turn. It seems like God has somebody in the palace. There is somebody near the power. And for a moment, there is grace. She can come forward. She will be heard. Maybe the tide will turn. Well, when Haman hears this, he's ecstatic. He goes home and he brags to his wife and says, you're not going to believe this. Out of all the people in the entire kingdom, Esther has invited me and the king to a party. Ah, oh, the world's 10 greatest men and how I picked the other nine. He is full of himself. Wife says, oh, honey, I'm so proud of you. He said, well, I can't rest until that Mordecai is dead. She says, well, that's easy. Have your servants go outside the house, put a 75-foot pole straight up in the air, and tomorrow at supper, you hang that sucker on that pole. Then the rest of the city will know that you are the one in charge. Oh, that's a great idea, he says. He goes to bed. The king does not. The king that night is tossing and turning in his bed. He can't sleep. He's pacing the corridor. And finally, he orders that one of his servants come in and read to him, wait for it, some scintillating material. The Chronicles of the Kings of Persia. People, that's like having somebody read to you from the Wesleyan discipline. <laughs> of course that's going to put you to sleep. But it doesn't. They come to the part where Mordecai overheard the two trying to kill him. And when the king heard it, he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, right there, stop. Has anything been done for the guy who spared the king's life? And the servant said, not to my knowledge. And right when he said it, the king spun around and looked down the hall, and there was Haman. He had gotten up to come see the king in the middle of the night in order to get permission to have Mordecai hanged. And before Haman can get all the way into the king, the king says to Haman, wait a minute, before you start, I have a question for you. What should be done for the person whom the king delights in. How do I reward someone that I want to show my pleasure to? Haman thinks he's talking of himself. So Haman says, oh, that's easy. What you do is you find one of the king's robes, one that you wore, and you put it on that guy, whoever he may be. And then you find one of the horses that you used to ride and you give him the keys to one of your Lamborghini horses and you let him drive it as his own. Then you put a servant in front of that horse and he leads them through the city shouting, this is what happens to the one the king delights in. And when Xerxes hears it, he says, 
That's a great idea. Do that for Mordecai. <laughs> if you love justice, and some of you do, the tide is starting to turn. Haman has to go through the city gates with Mordecai on the king's horse behind him, shouting, this is what happens to the one I hate. And the king admires. That night, Haman returns home, and this time, he is devastated. He says to his wife, you're not going to believe this. And when she hears it, his wife says, honey, you better back off. The tide is turned and you will not live. But before he can argue with her, the servants of the king arrive and take Haman to the banquet. Once they are in the banquet, on the second day, and the kinks had a few drinks, Esther waits. Now, underline that. Esther does not blurt. She waits for the power to ask. And it does. The king says, Esther, now about that request, what is it that you want up to half of the kingdom? And Esther, whose name means hidden or concealed, reveals her identity. She says, if it pleases the king, if I have found favor in your eyes, sir, I am a Jew. And someone has written an edict that every Jew must die. That means me and all of my people. Sir, I don't want any part of your kingdom. I want to live. And I just want my people to live. The king is confused. He says, who did that? <laughs> Well, that would be him, but, but in Persia, that'll cost you your head. So she says, there is an evil person who has even put money in the treasury that the slaughter might begin. It is that man, Haman, sitting right next to you. When the king hears this, he realizes for the first time that he has been played. He has given his signet ring, his power to a man who cannot be trusted with it. The king, embarrassed and now angry, gets up and leaves the court, goes into the garden, paces back and forth, thinking what he's going to do. Meanwhile, Haman is inside the chambers caught between the king he betrayed and the queen he wants to kill. Esther gets up from the table, goes over to a couch, and just sort of 
The deed is done. Haman starts begging for his life. He runs over, throws his body on top of Esther while she's laying there begging for his life. And right when he does it, the king comes walking back into the room. Timing is everything. He looks and sees Haman laying on top of his wife. And he says, is it not enough that you would embarrass the king? You will even molest my wife in my own chambers? What should be done to a man like this? And one of his servants slides over and says, uh, sir, there is this 75-foot pole right outside that dude's house. Why don't you to hang him on a symbol of his evil. King said, that's a beautiful idea. And before he can change his mind, the servants throw a bag over Haman's head. They lead him out and they hang him. Esther, however, is not done. She goes back in to see the king bows one more time and says, sir, if it pleases the king, if I have found favor in your eyes, there is still this law that we must overturn. The king says, I can't overturn that. The law is the law. She said, then write another one. So the king writes another law that says, be it decreed across my empire that the Jews have a right to assemble, a right to protect themselves, and a right to take the property of anyone trying to take theirs. Mordecai is elevated to second in command. He inherits all of Haman's property, including his office. And the Jews find many Persians converting to their faith. The end. Ain't that a story? Yes? This morning, there are people who feel that they're trying to work and live in places that are very hard for you. Some of you are women trying to maneuver in an office that is still dominated mostly by men. Some of you are people of color and you're trying to maneuver in a culture whose rules and customs have been heavily influenced by those predominantly white. Others of you, all of you, are religious, and you are trying to practice the elements of your faith 
in a culture where it is increasingly hostile to your ways and your customs. In some ways, the prejudice against religious people, Christians in particular, is the only form of prejudice still tolerated. It is real. And there are many in this country who suffer from that. As I read the story of Esther, two things became clear to me. Both of them give me immense hope. Can I share them and then I'm done? I'll be fast. Those of you watching the clock. The first is that in seasons like this where it seems God is silent and he is nowhere to be seen. In the book of Esther, his name never occurs one time. God is nowhere mentioned in the entire book. There is no law. There is no covenant. There is no temple. There are no miracles. There are no priests. There is nothing sacred in the entire story. And that's how it feels to some of us this morning, depending on where you work. And am I the only person who more than once have wanted God to barge into that office space and to roll up his sleeve and do something to make a statement? Have you not wanted God to do something obvious just once so you can refer to it and say, see but he is not. He is mentioned in church and then in vain or not at all. I have good news for you. In seasons like this, God is still alive and present and active in negative space. Negative space, they say, is that space in between the things you're looking at. And so while you are looking at all of the news that CNN and Fox and MSNBC or social media is dishing up and you're wondering, why doesn't God do something? God is active in spaces between the things you're looking at, but he is active in personalities and he is active in characters and in coincidences. Things that you would chalk off to just pure luck, God is active in those moments. What are the chances that the king can't sleep? What are the chances he's still awake halfway through the chronicles? Persia. What are the chances that Haman appears at just the right time? What are the chances the king walks in and sees him laying on top of his wife? These moments that seem to you just to be lucky could in fact be the movement of God. God still has people on the inside. The king's heart is still in the Lord's hands. He directs it like a river anywhere he wants. Our God is still in heaven. Psalm 115 verse 3. He does whatsoever he pleases. Period. Never forget that. 
because it's gonna feel to you like you're losing ground, but God is active in between the things you're looking at, maneuvering events to preserve his people, the remnant for another day. Second, God always uses people to do his work. People who live such good lives among the pagans that even though they get accused of doing wrong, the king one day sees their good works and glorifies God on the day he visits. But God has people that are at the gate and he has people that are in the palace. And so many of us in this room this morning are not in the palace. Like Mordecai, you stand at the gate and you find it easier to shout invectives at what the people who lead you should do. The president of your company, the one who runs the denomination, the one who leads the universities. Well, here's what I would never do, you say but you can barely speak of what you would do. And so you shout things to other people at the gate about the conditions you suffer because you feel them. They're real. Esther doesn't even know what's happening. You do. Your temptation is to believe that because you have shouted, you have done something. Fast. Pray. Inform. and then be quiet. Live such good lives among the pagans. Those of you, not as many, I admit, are in the palace. And while those at the gate always know what they would do, The temptation of those in the palace is to never know what you should do. It is to become so ensconced in power and privilege that you can no longer see and feel the pain of people at the gate. To believe that as long as things are good with you, then things are good. Hear me, church. You must be bold at the moment and the place where the war is the fiercest. But you must be smart and you must be patient. There are times in the struggle when patience is more powerful than protest. 
There are moments when power is relational, not positional. It all depends on how the king perceives you. So how you appear to the king at any moment is sometimes more valuable than your argument. You may resort to the Constitution if you think. Refer to the Bill of Rights and how all men are created equal. Go ahead. But if people in power perceive you terribly, that will hurt you. We may not like it. We don't. But we must learn to appear to those in power like we can be trusted. Like we have virtue. So you must be bold. You must come forward. You must say it to people who can do something not your friends at the gate. And you must live such good lives among that king that even though he might accuse you of doing what is wrong, he will see your virtue and glorify God on the day he visits us. The way of Esther is not the way of resistance. It's the way of subversion. It gets inside of power and changes it. Would you bow your head and close your eyes, please? It occurs to me this morning that I am preaching not just to myself, though, though I have been preaching to myself. There are some this morning who are better at criticism than at prayer in fasting. You have shouted, because you want things to change and the pain is real. Listen to me, you are a valuable part of God's plan, but you have to remember where he's put you and what is possible there. And you must play within your limitations. There are others who actually have some power and privilege of their own. And you are tempted this morning to shy away to think that it might not be worth it if I say something everyone could lose and I could lose. And maybe God is calling on you to say, no, it is worth it. There is a moment and a time when you must come forward and you must speak even at great cost. You must give God room to move 